All right, I trust you have a copy of the handout. And as you look at the handout, particularly as you look from left to right down the page, what do you see? A lot of letters you don't recognize. Do you recognize the pattern? Mr. Sanborn? The letters are in alphabetical order. That is correct. They are in alphabetical order according to the 22 letters of the Hebrew alphabet. So, <clears throat> these letters in alphabetical order, 1 to 22 verses, 1 to 22 letters or consonants, make this chapter a what? It is an acrostic, and there you can see the acrostic feature. <clears throat> so on the immediate left-hand side of the uh, English letters that are in parentheses, you can see the successive letters of the Hebrew alphabet, Aleph to Tav, <clears throat> at the beginning and end. So um, an acrostic, then, is an attempt to begin each succeeding line, or verse in this case, with a succeeding letter of the Hebrew alphabet. So verse 1 of Lamentations 1 begins with a word that begins with the letter Aleph. Verse 2 begins with a letter that, a word that begins with the letter Beth. That next letter underneath the Aleph in verse 2 is a Beth. And then Gimel, Daleth, etc., on through the alphabet to Tav. <clears throat> The genius here, of course, is that the writer, whom I believe to be Jeremiah, has constructed the 22 verses in an acrostic pattern so that he is following the Hebrew alphabet as he inaugurates each successive verse of this chapter. In other words, he constructed it in acrostic style for particular purposes. And we may ask, why then does Jeremiah use the acrostic pattern for this first chapter of Lamentations? He will repeat this in chapter 2, as we pointed out last week. He will repeat it again in chapter 4. He will do a variation of the acrostic in chapter 3. But nonetheless, he will follow this acrostic pattern religiously in three out of the five chapters Three of those chapters having 22 verses, 1, 2, and 4. You will see this very same pattern from Aleph to Tav. Why? Why construct these chapters, or this initial chapter at any rate, why construct it on the basis of an acrostic? Why go through the Hebrew alphabet from Aleph to Tav, in English, from A to Z, so to speak. Why do this? It has the effect of completeness. From A to Z, from beginning to end of the alphabet, it has the effect of thoroughness. In this case, a thorough poetic reflection, because this is Hebrew poetry and lamentations. It is a thorough poetic reflection 
on the narrative subject. Uh, what is the narrative subject of Lamentations 1? In fact, the narrative subject of the whole book of Lamentations. Jerusalem. Jerusalem. What about it? The destruction of Jerusalem in what year? 586 B.C. All right, so he is going to poetically express the thoroughness or the completeness or the wholeness of the destruction of Jerusalem by the Babylonians in 586, and he is going to do it poetically in acrostic style. So the acrostic has the, the purpose, in other words, the purpose here. He does this for a reason. Yes, he does it under divine inspiration, but nonetheless, he does it for a reason. He does it in order to show the completeness of the narrative destruction of Jerusalem. And he will repeat that with slight variations in chapter 2 and chapter 4 and even in chapter 3. He will not do it in chapter 5. We will confront the issue there as to why he stops where he stops in chapter 5 when we reach that point. All right, so we have a sense of what the acrostic look like, looks like. We have a sense of why the acrostic has been chosen. This form, this genre, has been chosen to express the poem in this fashion. Now we notice something else about this chapter. It is a macrochiasm. It is a macrochiasm, meaning it is a large, whole, chiastic pattern from verse 1 to verse 22, from Aleph to Tau. This is a huge macrochiasm in addition to being an acrostic. Now, in order to enable you to see the chiastic feature of this chapter, I have used the English words that are duplicated at the antipodes of the chiasm, and I have used A, A prime, B, B prime, C, C prime, etc., to the crisscross in verses 11 and 12, where you actually see a mini chiasm. But at any rate, I have then placed in parenthesis beside the English word, the uh, words from the Hebrew text, which are duplicated. Keep in mind that he has duplicated these chiastic patterns in, shall we say, descending stair-step order, in order to show the reflective similarity of the message of the poem. In other words, what he is trying to communicate by the word great in verse 1, he is also trying to mirror by the word great in verse 22. Rabati in verse 1, which means great. Rabati in verse 22, which means great and He is mirroring or echoing, and that's the reason for the chiastic, parallel to chiastic symmetry. Now, when we realize that there are actually two voices in this chapter, that is the voice of the poet, which is a descriptive voice from verses 1 to 10, and the voice of personified or personalized Jerusalem, which is the voice from verses 11 to 22. When we realize there are two voices in this poem, 
we also understand more of the purpose and the drama of the chiasm. In other words, as A answers A prime, as the descriptive voice of Jeremiah answers the personalized voice of Jerusalem in verse 22, there is an echo or mirror relationship. The text tells you that. He lines up the Hebrew words using the very same roots in order to carry on this what we might call antiphonal echo, this antiphonal mirror, this the voice of description and the voice of existential realization. They reflect the very same imagery, the very same tragedy, the very same pathos. But he does the chiastic pattern in order to keep those voices, shall we say, in tune. Jeremiah speaks descriptively. The city speaks personally. The two voices speak the same message of mourning, lamentation, destruction, and devastation. So the chiasm, which always, a chiasm always reflects upon itself, the chiasm reflects upon itself in terms of the dual, the dual voices in the narrative of the poem. Lamentations 1, macrochiasm and dual narrative voices. Now, chiasm is not an invention on my part. Chiasm flows out of the Hebrew words that are in the symmetrical lines. And you can look at them at your leisure and you will notice that those Hebrew words are duplicated in almost every case exactly the way they were in the reciprocal relationship. And that's the reason I've placed them in the outline, so that you can see that I have not contrived the chiasm. A genuine chiasm must come out of the inspired text, must come out of the Hebrew, the Greek text. An English chiasm is not legitimate unless it's based upon the original text. You can see that this chiasm is based upon the Hebrew text. They match at every point from verse 1 to 22, 2 to 21, 3 to 20, and so on. Now, there is a transition in this chiasm. And the transition in this chiasm is at the center of the chapter. In fact, in verses 11 and 12... There is a chiasm of its own. Look and see. I'm sorry. See and look in 11. And then in 12, look and see. There's a perfect crisscross chiasm at the center of the chapter. Now, why does he do this? He reverses the verbs at the point of the reversal in the narrative. He reverses the verbs at the point of transition from the voice of Jeremiah, the narrator, whose voice ends in verse 10, to the voice of the city personalized, which begins in verse 11. There is actually a comment from the voice of the city 
in verse 9, which is an exception. And there is a comment from the voice of the narrator in verse 17, which is an exception to the pattern. But the crisscross at the center of the chapter indicates the transition in the voices who are speaking the language of Jerusalem's destruction. All right, any questions about that basic literary paradigm and the construction of the book uh, in the original text? Scott. You have it down that uh, the voice of personified Jerusalem is speaking in verse 11 and 12. That's correct. So in a sense, the mirror between the two speakers really isn't happening between verse 11 and verse 12. In other words, that middle chiasm isn't a mirror between the prophet or the poet and Jerusalem, is it? Uh, Well, verse 11 signals that transitional voice, and it will carry on to verse 21. There is a, an explanation, there is an element of direct discourse in verse 9 from personalized Jerusalem, but it does not continue in verse 10. Okay. But then, then it goes in verse 11, though. You have the voice of personified Jerusalem? Yes. So then, in other words, what I was getting is, you were, uh, as you were describing the chiasm, the first half of it being the poet, uh, I guess I would have logically thought that would end at verse 11. That would continue to verse 11, but it doesn't. No, it does not. It ends at verse 10. <clears throat> there are 10 verses of the descriptive voice, and there are 10 verses of the personified voice, and the transition at 11 and 12 is a transition which also includes the personified voice. Of Jerusalem or both? Of Jerusalem. There is an exception in verse 17. That is the voice of the descriptive poet. Do you see any significance to that? There's Jerusalem getting the chiasm there? Yes, I think it is the, as I will say when we get there, I think it is the imperative appeal that that comes with those verbs. All right, well, let's begin then with verse 1, following in your uh, English Bible. And we've already seen that uh, first word of this uh, book of Lamentations, ekah, in the Hebrew, which begins with the letter Aleph, and translated in most of your versions with the English word how. That is simply not powerful enough. This word, ekah, will be repeated at the beginning of chapter 2. It'll be the first word in the first verse in Lamentations 2. It will also be the first word in the first verse of Lamentations chapter 4. He will use this word, ekah, to begin three of the five chapters of this book of Lamentations. It is a word which he chooses to put in the initial position in three places out of five in this book, in order to address the tone of the whole work. How doesn't cut it? How doesn't express the deep agony and horror and amazement that Etah suggests in the original Hebrew? In other words, 
in this book of Lamentations, in this book of recounting the horrors of Jerusalem's destruction, he needed a word to set the tone at the beginning of the first chapter, the beginning of the second chapter, beginning of the fourth chapter, and he actually uses it one more time, but not at the beginning of a verse. He uses it in the middle of verse 2 of chapter 4. So he uses it four times in the book. It becomes, shall we say, a literary or rhetorical theological device. He does not use it at all in chapter 5, which once again raises the the question about the significance of the change in form, change in genre. It is not an acrostic. The change in tone in chapter 5. We will have to grapple with that as we move forward. All right, better than how is the English word alas. Alas, which conveys that amazement at the horror and sorrow and the smoke ascending from the burning city of Jerusalem. Alas, therefore, what images of reversal rediscover in this very first verse. Keep in mind that this is a narrative of the reverse fortune of Jerusalem in 586 B.C. What she was before the Babylonians set her on fire, she is not when when Jeremiah is writing Lamentations. What she once was, she is no more. So there's a reverse paradigm here. What she was, she was a bustling metropolis. What she now is, she sits lonely and abandoned. What she once was, she was full. She is now empty. Reverse paradigm. What she now is, a widow, is the reverse of what she once was, a wife mother. What she once was, great among the nations, She is not now. She is ridiculed and ruined. Now, this phrase, great among the nations, that appears in that first verse may have an allusion to whom? When was she great among the nations, this city of Jerusalem? During Solomon's reign. Anyone else? Solomon's father. Say we say David and Solomon. The Davidic Solomonic era was the era of the greatest extent of the Hebrew monarchy in the Old Testament age. It is possible that he's referring all the way back to David and Solomon. Great among the nations in 1000 BC and later. But it is also possible that since Jeremiah is the author of this line, And he may be referring to the greatness of Jerusalem more proximate to his own contemporary era. Art? Josiah, correct. It is possible that here is an allusion to the greatness of Judah and Jerusalem 
during the reign of King Josiah, when in fact Jerusalem was one of the key keystone nations of the world of the Levant, that is, the region between Mesopotamia and Egypt. Possibly. In any event, she once was great, she now is ruined. And she once was a princess, she is now a slave. Each of these words in verse 1 is an evocative image. It carries with it the emotional tug of the sense of devastation, humiliation, and helplessness, even shame. This harsh now reality of what once was, then, time past. Notice the duplication in the verbs. What she has become, twice repeated. What she once was, twice repeated. She is no more what she once was. What she has now become is the very opposite of what she once was then. She sits in her woe. She sits in her horror. The common position of a mourner. She sits in the dust, mourning her past mourning her emptiness, mourning her loneliness, mourning her widow-slave condition. Notice the feminine aspect. The city is addressed as she. The pronoun arouses that sympathy or pathos which causes our hearts to go out with a degree of pity for this lonely, abandoned female City, And the language supports that feminine pathos, a widow, a princess, an exile, verse 3, feminine exile, bereft mother, verse 5, ravished or whorish woman, verses 8 to 10. Female gender carries with it that pathos and pity for the weaker vessel. And immediately the emotion of sympathy is drawn from the reader of these lines. The slavery to which she has been reduced is the slavery of forced labor. This is a pattern which is part of the Old Testament system. Joshua chapter 16 verse 10, the Canaanites were reduced to forced labor when they were conquered by the Israelites. That verse is repeated in Judges chapter 1, verse 30. But the interesting occurrence of this forced labor system is in the Solomonic era. The building of Jerusalem, namely his palaces, his his, uh, (coughs) edifices, and also the temple in 1 Kings 5, verses 13 to 14. The Israelites are reduced to forced labor by their own king. In French, this is known as corvée, corvée labor, which means it is unpaid. No one is remunerated. They are put to the wheel, put to the lash. They are put to the task without any expectation of reward. Of course, it is a cruel form 
of oppression, which belongs to conquerors and those conquered, which raises the question as to why Solomon subjected the Israelites to it himself. Not a feather in his cap. Here, this bond service to which Princess Jerusalem has been turned is abject slavery. They have been made serfs, drudge slaves. The irony is here that what was used of persons, what was used of people to build the nation, to build Jerusalem, to build Solomon's temple, is now used on them. They are reaping what they have sowed, even what was sowed by their king 500, near 400 years before. The end of Judah is as the beginning of Israel. She is turned back to bondage and slavery. That was what she was at her national beginning. She was a bond slave. What is happening in 586 B.C. is the image of the exodus from Egypt in reverse. Back to bondage. Back to slavery. Back to forced labor. Back to hard taskmasters. Back to whips and chains and exile. Some of the survivors of this destruction even go down into Egypt and forcibly take Jeremiah with them. Jeremiah 43, verses 6 and 7. Verse 2 continues the portrait of this grieving female. The she of verse 1 is expanded here. She weeps in the night. She has no comforter. Her former friends are now her enemies. At night, when the world is silent, we hear her sobs. Her sobs and wails break the quiet of the dark. And if we look closely, we can see the tears flowing down her cheeks in the dark watches of the night. Weeping, tears, products, signs of suffering. The prophet Jeremiah mirrors this picture in chapter 9, verse 1 of his prophetic work. My eyes are a fountain of tears, he declares, as he mourns for the slain daughter of my people. Jeremiah thirteen seventeen. My eyes flow down with tears because of the captivity of my people. The similarity of imagery here with the weeping city of Jerusalem and the weeping prophet Jeremiah in his own work is another chink in my armor of defending Jeremianic authorship of the book of Lamentations. He mirrors himself in her. She mirrors herself in him. As poetic narrator, he is describing 
Jerusalem's sorrow as tears in the night. As prophetic narrator, he details his own tears in the night on behalf of his people. Jeremiah weeps. He weeps with those who weep. She weeps alone. She weeps alone, does this city. There is none to comfort her. As she sits in solitary abandonment, so she weeps in unattended dereliction. And that comfortless state echoes and re-echoes as a litany in this opening chapter, an ever-increasing staccato of none to comfort, no comforter, verse 9, a comforter is far from me, verse 16, no one to comfort, verse 17, and again, no one to comfort, verse 21. Her solitary suffering leaves her comfortless, 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 no one to comfort me. Five times over, she's obsessed with her lack of a comforter. She does not feel the pain of suffering. She certainly does. And she expostulates it, crying out and wailing. No one, no one to comfort me. None of her lovers. Jeremiah confirms the fact of Judah's illicit lovers in Jeremiah chapter 2, verse 25, chapter 22, verses 20 and 22, chapter 30, verse 14. None of Jerusalem's lovers comfort her, her whorish lovers. None of those to whom she gave herself in illicit amours, none cares about her, none embraces her, none hugs, none, none of the hugs from her lewd lovers now come to cover her nakedness or to warm, warm her cold, naked body, to wipe away her tears, to cover her desolation, her scars, her wounds, which are deep physically and emotionally. All her illicit lovers have used her and abandoned her when her beauty has been despoiled. Her easy trick status has made her an ugly, dirty, worthless individual. All those lovers whom she pursued, who pursued her, all have scorned her, degraded her, forsaken her, left her alone in tears, used, abused, and abandoned. How many times does the story have to repeat itself? How many times in one age after another does the story repeat itself? 
too many times. And in this day, too many times in the so-called Orthodox Christian communities. Too many times. In fact, all these lovers are so-called friends. A parallel expression you'll notice in that verse for lovers. Also, a same parallel expression in Jeremiah chapter 3.1. Her so-called friends or lovers have turned on her. They had betrayed her with treachery, becoming now her enemies. She has been treacherous to her soul, true and divine lover. Her many and false lovers have been treacherous to her. The betrayal with which she has betrayed her genuine lover had been turned back upon her own body and soul. She has been betrayed, treacherously betrayed and abandoned by her phony lovers, none of whom ever cared about her at all, save as a cheap trick. We are scarcely inside the poetic narrative of Lady Jerusalem's suffering and sorrow than we learn that her misery is, in large measure, her own fault. The wages of her own infidelities, the price of her harlotry, the cost of her sin, her over and over and over again sin. Tears, loneliness, Pain, emotional dereliction, abuse, betrayal, none to comfort. All this she has brought upon herself because she refused to live and love the obedient lover of her soul and the word of God from his sacred mouth. She traded the joy of the Lord for tears of pain and sorrow. She exchanged the fellowship and warmth of God's presence and embrace for the loneliness of the abandonment of her illicit paramours. She substituted for the pleasure of God's sweet love the pain and sorrow of her treacherous and abusive playboy. She exchanged the emotional health and peace of God's ever tender affection for the emotional emptiness and gut-wrenching nausea of being used, only used, nothing but used, and that over and over and over again. She traded the all-enwrapping comfort of the Lord's everlasting arms for no comforter, for none to wrap arms of comfort about her, for the misery, the empty, nauseous, comfortless misery filling her soul as one lover after another leaves her, disappears from her life, leaves her in her tears, sorrow, shame, her exposure, 
leaves her to herself, leaves her to die. Verse 3, the nation which contains this city is now named for the first time. Now, this is no surprise to us, for we instinctively perceive the geographical context, but this mark of the inauguration of the personalization of the city from which this suffering and sorrow arise is begins here in verse 3. We have a name for this place of sorrow. Personalization. It will be a major paradigm throughout the book of Jeremiah's Lamentations. The punishment for her sinful behavior is the exile of the nation or the exile of a significant portion of the nation Because from Jeremiah 40 to 42, we learn that some of the Judeans remained in Palestine after the destruction of the city, including Jeremiah himself for a short time. This exile results in harsh servitude, never ceasing slave labor, reminiscent of I've already indicated of Israel's condition in Egypt before the Mosaic Exodus. We are expanding here in verse 3, the slave labor motif of verse 1, as a virtual return to bondage via ejection from the land of rest. The land of rest, which Canaan was to be to the post-Exodus generation. There is in this verse an intriguing pun on the Hebrew word for Egypt. In the last word of the verse, it is translated distress or in the margin, narrow places in the NASB. Is Jeremiah summing up a reverse Exodus paradigm here, complete with a new descent into slavery, a land of no rest and distressing conditions, all of which echo the sound of the word Mitzrayim. Mitzrayim, which is the Hebrew word for Egypt. But the word translated here, distress or narrow places, is Metzarim. Metzarim. The consonants are exactly the same, only the vowels are different. Is he playing upon the sound Mitzrayim in your Metzarim? Interesting. There are multiple images of reversal here. She once sat or dwelt alone in Judah. She now dwells or sits in exile, deported from Judah. She once was great among the nations, verse 1. She is now scattered and despised among the nations. She once was pursued by her lovers, verse 2. She is now pursued as a fugitive, as hunters chase after the prey. Judah was once to her a place of secure rest. She now finds no rest as she is banished to the Mesopotamian plains 
and the Egyptian Delta. Her suffering and sorrow is a suffering of no place to call home, only continuous, perpetual exile. Her suffering and sorrow is a suffering and sorrow of no place to experience freedom, only freedom and that perpetual no liberty slavery. Her suffering and sorrow is the suffering of no place to rest, only a land where she is pursued, pursued relentlessly like a fugitive. Verse 4, as we have learned the name of the country of these sorrows in verse 3, so in verse 4 we discovered the first mention of the personal name of the city of sorrows. Again, we are not surprised as our narrative approach has identified the author of this magnificent poem, Jeremiah of Zion in Judah. The occasion of its plangent lines, Zion of Judah's breach and collapse at the hands of Nebuchadnezzar's Babylonian hordes. And the general consequences of the story of the city and the nation as recorded in the books of Kings, Chronicles, and the prophets of Judah and Jerusalem. We are not surprised at the name of the city recorded here. Listing the name of the city in verse 4 segues into the personification of the city. That is, giving the city not only its personal name, but giving the city its own personality, as if the city were a living thing. Note bene, note well here in verse 4, the city's roads mourn. Personification. The city's gates are left desolate. Personification. We will follow Jeremiah's poetic art as he builds this personification of Zion, Jerusalem, to the first person personal pronoun, I, in verse 11 and following. Personification will give a voice to a silent impersonal city, and in that voice, we shall descend more deeply, more poignantly into the threnody of the I of 586 B.C. To give the city a personal vitality is to draw the reader of these lines, the hearer of these words, into the pathos of the calamity. To bring us into identification with the living suffering of the persons in the city. The dolorous grief of the city itself. The finality of the death throes of the humiliated, condemned, and dispersed nation. Personification existentializes. Personification existentializes the narrative and draws the people of God of every era in the history of redemption 
into the drama of suffering, humiliation, condemnation, and expatriation. A suffering and humiliated prophet, a suffering and humiliated city, a suffering and humiliated nation, a suffering and humiliated Israel of God. Israel of God in suffering and humiliation. The verse tells us that the appointed feasts are abandoned. The appointed feasts are silent. The appointed feasts are no longer celebrated at King Solomon's temple in David and Solomon's city in Judah's tiny territory. The remnant tribe of David and Solomon's seed, no one celebrates the feasts. No one comes to the festival. The roads to Zion are empty. No pilgrims pass through the gates. No psalms of ascent are heard choiring the climb to Mount Zion. No priests nor maidens greet them as they come to the hill of Zion. All is silence and desolation. Or is it the sound of silence that we hear? The personified city mourns. She wails. She weeps in sobs and flowing tears. The priests groan, writhing in pain, physical and wailing in angst, emotional. The virgins or young maidens cry out in their suffering, their affliction, their grief. This silence of desolation is in fact a weltering cacophony of agony, of of desertion, of destruction, of death. It is the silence of former joy and celebration, silent, former parading acclamation with sacred intonation now silenced, all of that dead and dying. It is the deafening, bitter wails, the groans, the grief of affliction, the shrieks of death, the silence of joy, the screeches of suffering. The reversal touches not only the nation Judah in verse 3, it, concern, it consumes the city Zion in verse 4. Accompanied by the antithetical chorus, wailing for singing, grieving for celebrating. Now, one note on the structure of this verse. You'll notice the word desolate, which is used here for the gates of Zion. The Hebrew word shamim. And if you turn to chapter 5, verse 18, you will notice that Mount Zion, which lies desolate, foxes prowl in it. It is exactly the same Hebrew word, shamim. 
I'm going to suggest that this duplication of this word, and it only occurs in these two places, that this duplication places a large thematic bracket around desolation of Zion, Jerusalem, making chapter 1, verse 4 of Lamentations to chapter 5, verse 18, a narrative of that desolation in its causes, effects, and ongoing significance. Now, if I am correct in that suggestion, namely, the poet has bracketed the beginning and end of the description of the woes of suffering Jerusalem, then that means verses 19 to 22 of chapter 5 are outside of the bracket. Those verses lie outside of the dramatic lamentation which unfolds from chapter 1 to chapter 5, verse 18. Chapter 5, verses 19 to 22 have a unique role in this dramatic lament. I believe then that the final four verses of this book are in fact a unique poetic declaration an ending which appropriates a unique aspect of God's very own character, an aspect of God's character which has transforming significance, or the reverse of lamentation with everlasting glorification. That is my suggestion, and I believe that the poet has placed it outside of his bracket of lament because it is the opposite. And at the end of this five-chapter work, a chorus of God's character as an eternal and glorious being. But more on that when we come to chapter five. All right, it's time for a break. All right, we've reached verse five. In the fifth verse, we have revealed the cause of the suffering within the gates and on the roads of Zion in Judah. That cause is both remote and proximate, sovereign and voluntary. For the first time, sin is uncovered as the cause of Zion's misery. In fact, the multitude of her sins, a phrase the prophet Jeremiah duplicates in chapter 5, verse 6 of his prophecy. The plethora of Judah's iniquities is a flood of rebellion against the Lord, a torrent of hatred and contempt for his holy character, his nature, his Sovereign will. Let us be clear, as Jeremiah is clear. Zion's transgressions were not mere peccadillos to be dismissed as minor offenses. No, a thousand times no. Zion's sins were willful warfare. Willful warfare and contempt against Almighty God, His existence, and His moral character. It is not coincidental 
that as we have here the first mention of sin as the cause of this calamity, we also have here the first mention of God's name, Yahweh, and his response to sinners' open warfare against him. He punishes those sinners with warfare against them, their nation, and their capital city. If they take arms against God the Lord, he takes arms against them in the person of the enemy army of Babylon. Attack him and his sovereign righteous will, and God will respond. He will sovereignly permit even the wicked Babylonians to punish his wicked nation, his wicked city, his wicked people. If Judah and Zion voluntarily indulge transgression, and that in a multitude of ways. If Judah and Zion voluntarily indulge transgression, God will sovereignly punish their transgressions in a multitude of sorrows, a multitude of sufferings, a multitude of humiliations, a multitude of deaths. What Judah and Zion sow in the wages of sin will be repaid to them in the wages of divine punishment with attendant misery and suffering. Sin earns death and all the attendants that accompany death. Pain, grief, desolation, starvation, emotional devastation, insecurity, betrayal, deceit, death, all of which are among the multitude of divine judgments for a multitude of human sins. Judah and Zion permit themselves voluntarily of their own willful choices to transgress, to sin against God, God's holy, righteous, moral will. God the Lord permits himself to voluntarily, from his own willful decree, to punish transgression, to judge sin against his holy, righteous, moral will and nature. Judah and Zion sowed to sin in 586 B.C. They reaped what they had sown from God's threshing floor. None of this surprises us. The prophets had predicted God's judgment for Judah's sin. Jeremiah, Ezekiel, Habakkuk, Zephaniah, all of whom are contemporaries of this era, all had preached to the city of Zion that God's just wrath would consume them with the wages of sin, which is death and attendant suffering. Lamentations is the book post-mortem. Lamentations is the post-mortem in which the judgment of God on Zion and Judah is in full display. A revelation in 586 B.C., a revelation in prophecy and poetry that sin will be and has been judged according to the infallible word of the Lord Yahweh. Do not toy 
for the justice of God. You will surely find yourself punished if you do so. He will not leave any sin go unpunished. You will notice a small structural inclusio in verse 5, the word adversary, which brackets the three lines. It's the second Hebrew word in line one, and it's the last word in the final line. Significantly, you will notice God as the sovereign permissive cause of Judah's grief is sandwiched. God is sandwiched between the adversaries of Zion, verse 1a and verse 1, or verse 5a and verse 5c. God sovereignly uses the adversaries to punish the nation from beginning to end of her many transgressions. Finally, the tyranny of Babylon. The tyranny of the Babylonian masters replaces the tyranny of runaway sin and transgression. Moral and spiritual tyranny and mastery is matched by political and physical tyranny and mastery. The tyranny of Satan and the kingdom of darkness is manifest in the political and physical world, even as it is manifest in the moral and spiritual world. That tyranny, whether it be political tyranny, whether it be physical tyranny, whether it be vaunted moral tyranny, that tyranny is ever the same. It is deadly. It is stifling, deadly. It crushes the life out of the one whom the tyrant places under his foot. Verse 6 carries forward the motif of tragic sadness and conquest that verse 5 began by means of recursive or reiterated vocabulary. Now, this is obvious in an English New American Standard Version where the verb gone or gone away in verse 5 is the same as the verb fled or gone in the margin in verse 6. You will also notice the duplication of the preposition before. In Hebrew, that preposition is literally before the face of. The preposition before followed by hostile forces, adversaries in verse 5, Pursuer in verse 6. The hostile vector here targets the weak and vulnerable, namely the little ones or youth in verse 5, as well as the powerful princes or young bucks in verse 6. Weak and strong, small and mighty are the object of invasive hostility. We may ask, What majesty has departed from the daughter of Zion? The daughter image once again inducing sympathy or emotional attraction for the desolate city as an abandoned or solitary daughter child. 
The majesty which has departed may be that of the princes, or perhaps leaders, as the term which is used here is used by Jeremiah in chapter 38, verse 4 of his prophecy. The princes or leaders who have been carried off to exile before the face or literally in front of the face of their captors. There's a visual image for you. And Hebrew is a very visual language. They're carried off before the face of their captors. In front of their faces, they are paraded. The imagery is pathetic, inducing the feeling of pathos or pity and sympathy. But on the other hand, majesty here could be all that honor and majesty which belonged to daughter Zion in terms of her adornment. Her adornment, namely the majestic temple of Solomon. Her adornment, namely the palace of the king. Her adornment, meaning the impressive gates of Jerusalem and even the majestic situation of this city set on a hill whose roads led ever upward as they led onward to the walls of Zion. In either case, the majesty or splendor is now lost. Whether it is the majesty of the leaders or princes, or whether it is the majesty of the adornment of the beauty of the city itself, it is ruined. They are ruined. They and it are laid in rubble. Its majesty has been collapsed. Or is the pursuit of the princes or the bucks in verse 6 a reference to the entourage which fled Jerusalem along with her last king, Zedekiah, who fled by night like a coward eastward toward the Jericho plains, taking flight not only from the Babylonian siege, but taking flight from the famine within the besieged capital. That story is recorded in 2 Kings 25, Jeremiah 52, and Jeremiah 39. The result, of course, of that escape was the capture of Zedekiah and the slaughter of those noble leaders, the execution of Zedekiah's sons right before his eyes, and then the red-hot poker to blind his eyes for the last sight that he saw, namely the dead corpses of his sons before him. Face to face, before the face of Nebuchadnezzar, Zedekiah's face becomes eyeless. And then he is placed in chains and led off to Babylon to exile before the face of his captors. In verse 7, the daughter of Zion, that is verse 6, Zion, or simply Zion, verse 4. In verse 7, the daughter of Zion or Zion merely becomes Jerusalem. And that name duplicated in successive verses. You find Jerusalem in verse 7 and then again in its duplication in verse 8. Now we've attempted to point out that as we have these increasing designations, we have increasing characterization. If in fact we take a narrative approach to this poetic drama, we are finding the poet building the characterization of the images he's portraying and revealing. The personification of the city of David and Solomon, 
has an increasing characterization. She is Zion, which means the fortress. She is a daughter-like beauty, diminutively attractive, daughter of Zion. She will also be called daughter of Jerusalem eventually in this narrative. She is a city of peace. Uru Salim. Uru Salim, which is the title in the Amarna letters of the 14th century B.C. Letters from an Akkadian scribe in Canaan to the kings of Egypt describing this city on a hill in what is modern-day Palestine, Uru Salim. You can even see urban in that. Uru, city. Salim, what do you think that means? Peace, yes. City of peace. Ancient Canaanitic, ancient Akkadian for city of peace. Jerusalem in the second millennium B.C., known to the Egyptians and to the Akkadians as Uru Salim, city of peace, or in Hebrew, Ha'ir Shalom. Ha'ir Shalom, city of peace. But there is no peace in this city of peace. Only war and the stench of deadly chaos. There is no beauty or attractiveness in this daughter. She has been stripped, exposed, ravished, and laid bare. Her vile uncleanness displayed as she is cast aside and ruined. There is no fortress to this metropolis. She has been breached, her citizens put to the sword, her walls crushed, her temple, palaces, and homes raised leveled to the ground. Is it now ironic that this city of peace is anything but shalom? That she is scarred and burned and exposed and filled with corpses? Is it the antithesis of Uru Salim that brings her name to the poetic narrative in a verse which is not three lines long in the Hebrew Masoretic text, as all the other 21 verses are three lines long, but a verse which is four lines long in the Hebrew Masoretic text. Is it the unique and ironic reversal of the name Jerusalem signaled by this unique and lengthy line of Hebrew text? Is that the reason he puts four lines in verse 7 when every other verse in chapter 1 has three lines? underscoring the dramatic, tragic, and pathetic reversal of this name. Perhaps, perhaps the new name for the city on the hill is matched by a peculiar line sequence in Jeremiah's poetry. He draws attention to the name change synonym by means of a line sequence which has no symmetry a line sequence which has no symmetry with a line count in the rest of the chapter. 
He draws your attention to this exceptional verse about this ironically no longer exceptional city. Even some of your English versions make seven, make verse seven the longest verse of the chapter. It is seven lines long in the New American Standard, while most of the other verses are four to six lines long in that same NASB version. Now you will once again pick up the duplication of the word adversary in this verse, a word which we found duplicated in inclusio fashion in verse 5. Remember, we placed God symmetrically or sandwiched between the two adversaries at the beginning and end of verse 5. There, that is in verse 5, the adversarial Babylonians have provoked and evoked cries of grief, wailing, sobbing from Zion's denizens. Here in verse 7, the cries and shouts and railing come from the mocking taunts. The scorn, the ridicule of the invading enemy. Shouts of insult, humiliation, degradation, mocking her integrity, ravishing her privacy, exposing her shame, destroying, nay, killing, murdering her vitality. And no one comes to her aid. As she shrieks, cries, wails in pain, and her sufferings mount up to the heavens, only silence, dead silence, silent as the corpses in the streets. No power, no person comes to help daughter Zion, beautiful daughter Jerusalem. Her homes are leveled, burned and razed, She has no place, no secure and safe place to lay her head. Her history is leveled, crushed. The days of old, as the verse indicates, a mere memory. Days of Moses and Joshua, days of David and Solomon, all the olden days of redemption, triumph and conquest, royal preeminence, imperial splendor, all those precious things Jerusalem now remembers. The present has destroyed the past. These days of affliction are the very reverse of those days of old. No one comes to help. Mirrors, nothing remains of the past, save memories. Time and space collapse in the shattered ruin and the strewed corpses of Ha'ir Shalom, Jerusalem de Lenda, Jerusalem de Lenda. Jerusalem must be destroyed. We meet Jerusalem again in verse 8, but not as a homeless waif nor an exile taunted with mockery, scorn, and insults. Here is Jerusalem uncovered in the nakedness of her moral and spiritual uncleanness. The double entendre here takes her nakedness as a mirror of her physical and spiritual harlotry. As she had bared her nakedness to her lovers and so prostituted her body to the vile perversity of infidelity, adultery, and worse 
So she is prostituted to the vile perversity of raping Babylonian soldiers, exposure to those who cruelly demean and degrade her, making a mockery of her nude body so that even she turns away from her uncleanness and abuse. Being despised and despising. Jerusalem, the city, has been laid bare, denuded, stripped and exposed with the filth of rotting corpses strewn about her rubble and the stench and sight of unclean, unclean, unclean echoing and re-echoing through the level upon level of that destruction. Jerusalem is not only destroyed, she is displayed in all her nakedness to her enemies, to her former allies, to the world. She has prostituted herself. She has now prostituted herself. This is the result of great sin, as the text reads. In the Hebrew, it's an infinitive absolute which doubles the root for sin, meaning Jerusalem sinned exceedingly in a multitude of ways, with the sexual imagery underscoring the vile nature of her perversity. It remains so. No culture can make right what God in his moral purity has made wrong. Are any adulterers faithful? Are any prostitutes moral? Are any homosexuals or lesbians or polygamists clean? We realize that Jerusalem in the 6th century B.C. was a hotbed of these sins and even more. And the result of this manifold uncleanness was the closing of the gates of the heavenly Jerusalem against such iniquity and uncleanness. The prophets, Jeremiah included, had pleaded with Lady Jerusalem to put away her adulteries, to repent of her infidelities, her whoredom, to turn from her moral and spiritual uncleanness to the grace of God, which would wash her, the grace of God, which would cleanse her, the grace of God that would make her whiter than snow. God himself, through the word of his servants, the prophets, begged Lady Jerusalem to turn from the evil of her great sin, lest she be stripped bare and exposed to shame, to abuse, and to death. But she would not. She would not listen. Her perverse love of her perverse lovers was her life. It was her delight. It was her most beloved pleasure. She spurned the invitation of the grace of God. She refused to listen to the warnings of coming judgment, death, and destruction. She would not, no, she would not turn from exposing herself to her lovers so that God did not turn from exposing her to her abusers her rapers, her enemies, her killers. The gates of heaven were closed against the unclean sinners of 586 B.C. because they were unwilling. They would not, no, they would not turn from their uncleanness to the cleansing blood of the covenant of grace, to the cleansing blood of the Lord Jesus Christ, to the cleansing blood of the cross of Jesus to the cleansing fountain which flows the gates of the new Jerusalem, they would not. That cleansing stream 
which washes away completely every unclean stain, every vile deed, every naked adultery, every perverse, unnatural sex act, that cleansing stream, they refused, contemptuously, hatefully refused. But here is a covering for the uncleanness of Lady Jerusalem. Here is a covering for daughter Zion. It is a spotless robe. It is a spotless robe of the righteousness of Christ Jesus. Cover yourself and your sin in this robe, O Jerusalem. Cover yourself and your sin in this robe, O generation of vile sinners. Dress yourself in this robe, this garment of free grace, and your shame will be hidden in the robe of Christ Jesus. Your nakedness will be covered by the robe of Christ Jesus. Your wickedness will be canceled by the righteousness robe of Jesus Christ. O sinner, take and put on the robe of Christ. Take and put on his spotless robe for yourself and your uncleanness. This, this, O sinner, is your invitation, your plaintive invitation to life to eternal life, not to death, even eternal death. And we have reached our limited time this evening, so you will stop at verse 8, and we will pick up with verse 9, Lord willing, next time. I'll entertain any questions or comments that you may have before we close in prayer. Let us pray. Father, these are images of deep sadness. Our hearts flow down with tears. We are drawn, even in poetic measure, into the depths of this suffering, realizing how much suffering in this present evil age is due directly to sinful behavior and to the immoral acts of those who hate your will, hate your person, and hate your son. Lord, we plead with you on their behalf. We pray that by your Spirit you might move their hearts to see that they stand in eternal danger. These are not merely prejudicial opinions and bigoted ideas and doctrines. These are the words of everlasting life. These are the words that through the blood and righteousness of Christ opened the gates of heaven, barred and closed fast against impenitent and recalcitrant sinners. 
O Lord, we beg for your grace for a hard-hearted generation. We plead that the gospel of the power of regeneration may go out into this land and to the nations to turn them from darkness to light, from death to life, from hatred to love, from their own intolerant bigotry, to acceptance of freedom of expression and belief. Lord, we see so much in the mirror of lamentations that looks like the images on our TV screens. Even so, Lord Jesus, come quickly. We pray in your precious name. Amen.